0: Welcome to the Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes-Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView and your host today, Thursday, April 15th, 2021. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical economic issues. If you'd like to subscribe to our free monthly newsletter, please visit our website, and if you can, support us on Patreon and Substack. My guest today is the eminent economist Paul Sheard. I get a lot of emails every day, but there are a handful of people I really pay attention to, and one of them is Paul. Whenever I see that he's written something new, I know that it will be worth reading every word. I think you'll see what I mean during this podcast. I'll be talking about Paul's extensive background throughout our discussion, but just to give you a quick tour, he hails from Australia, studied Japanese and economics, and quickly became a feature on the global macroeconomic circuit at Davos, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Bretton Woods Committee, and the Economic Club of Chicago, of New York, rather, sorry. That's next, maybe, coming to Chicago. (laughs) He was the chief economist for Nomura, S&P, and Lehman Brothers, which we'll be talking about. Paul is now senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School's Mosavar Rahmani Center and is joining us today from New York City. Welcome, Paul. Uh, Usually around this time of year, we'd be seeing each other along with your wife, Yoshiko, at the spring meetings of the World Bank. Um, Hopefully, we'll be able to do so again this fall. Um, But I'm looking forward to our conversation today, even if it is remote.
1: Thank you very much, Lyric. I'm looking forward to it as well. And uh, the day that we can gather again in person uh, cannot come a moment too soon. Exactly.
0: Um, as our regular listeners know, um, and as I warned Paul, I usually ask my guests how they first became involved in their field, and I've had some surprising answers, actually. Uh, Bill Overholt told me he got involved in, in Asian geopolitics through Filipino dancing, so I'm not sure if you have an equally <laughs> exotic story, Paul, but how did you first become interested in Japanese and in economics?
1: Wow. Well, I'm not going to be able to rival Bill's story. That's a that's one for the ages. Um, well, that goes back, Lyric, all the way to 1973 when I was a first-year student, came out of high school and entered university in Australia, Monash University. Um, and uh, I got interested and in, introduced to a Japanese martial art called Aikido. Um, mm. And uh, that got me interested and I ended up going to Japan for a while, studying Japanese, practicing at the the world headquarters. Um, But this was also a time, to put it in a more economic context, when um, Australia had become... You're orientated towards Asia and particularly was um, very closely allied to Japan's, at that point, still rapidly growing economy. And we'd just been dumped by the Brits. You remember, Britain mm. joined the EU, and uh, Australia, being a key member of the Commonwealth at that point, uh, was kind of on the outer. So, Australia as a country uh, was sort of and an economy was reorientating itself from you know, the mothership, the motherland, to really being linked in with Asia. So when I look back on it, I sort of realized that I was kind of part of that process of somebody who was really making my career uh, in, uh, in Asia and in Japan in particular.
0: So in a way, you're an example of soft power, Japan soft power. Um, yes, I think so. Mm-hmm. And
1: as you know, uh, there are so many things that, that are so attractive uh, and alluring in Japan running the whole gamut from the food, the culture, the infrastructure, uh, and uh, the social capital.
0: Well, today outside our offices here, we have cherry trees blossoming. So it's all around us, definitely. So during your career, uh, one thing I find fascinating is that um, there's been at least three great economic crises. The Asian financial crisis, um, the global financial crisis, the GFC, and the current disruptions caused by the pandemic. Um, You've had a ringside seat at each of these. So I'd like to talk to you today about what you saw at the time and what you think can be done to mitigate these issues so that we don't have um, additional crises um, that are as deep. Um, As the chief economist for Lehman Brothers at the time of the GFC, can you tell us where you were when and what happened when um, the GFC struck and the bottom fell out. What was that like? What happened? Um, mm. uh, I'm very curious about that story.
1: <laughs> that is a, that's a long story. How long do we have? But um, as long as you want. <laughs> well, uh, so I, I joined Lehman Brothers in Tokyo in the year 2000 as the chief economist for Asia, and then for my sins uh, got promoted to the global chief economist in 2006, and then moved to New York to the headquarters. And then, really, almost two years to the day, um, you know, the, we had the Lehman Brothers failure and that fateful weekend which really kicked off the global financial crisis and that of course triggered the great recession. So what was kind of and so I was at the coal face I was there the last day and you know for some time after that I remember that weekend very very well um and uh, you know it was it was a unique experience but I have to say that as an economist and at that point leading the global economics team you know as a team um we were very focused on what's going on in the global economy and perhaps less focused on the fact that we were employees of Of Lehman Brothers, and we got some kudos for that. I have to say, as we continued to publish in the wake of the crisis, people said, "You guys are still publishing! What is this, Global Weekly Economic Monitor?" That was very edifying to have that client feedback. Um, But perhaps the point I'd I'd emphasize, given the way you introduced me, Lyric, and again, thank you very much for that kind introduction, is that um, you know I'd been through the 1990s and the early 2000s as a Bank of Japan watcher, as a Japan economy watcher. Uh, I was in Japan from 90 three onto 2006, effectively. And so I was cutting my teeth at that point, moving from academe into the markets, uh, as a markets economist on, you know, banking crisis, non-performing loan crisis, uh, you know, the the bursting of the Japanese bubble, uh, a lot of fiscal red ink being spilt on the government's balance sheet. But then, of course, the Bank of Japan doing uh, what we call unconventional monetary policy, first of all, cutting interest rates to zero in 1999 and then launching the pioneer really in the modern age of quantitative easing in 2001 which went through to 2006. Um, So I spent quite a bit of time kind of you know trying to figure out what the heck is going on with QE and the interaction with fiscal policy etc. So when I came to the US and then the financial crisis happened Lo and behold, the Fed starts doing QE, and the Bank of England, and eventually the ECB, and the Bank of Japan. Of course, has another bite at the cherry. So I was, uh, while most people were experiencing this sort of something new, unless they you know had some experience with Japan, um, it, I was kind of going through the second round of this, and I guess felt um, you know it wasn't so new, and it wasn't so um, kind of uh, obscure to me, and uh, I guess that helped me kind of analyze what the heck was going on.
0: I love your phrase for this. Um, You you call the Bank of Japan the monetary garden of Eden. I think that's perfectly just describes. uh, And and I think a lot of our listeners might not realize the history that all of these innovations were really stemmed from the Bank of Japan. And I guess the question
1: is, are we becoming Japan? (laughs) Uh, well, I, you know, the answer is sort of yes and no. I've always you know, I've been asked that question a lot over the years um, because people knew me as having a Japan background. Um, and I mostly would say n- no because, to me, Japan was really a story, most of all, about deflation. So if you said what is the unique aspect as a sort of macroeconomist putting a stethoscope on the Japanese economy, it was that Japan fell into deflation in the mid-1990s and, you know, stayed there a long time and arguably is still in the twilight zone between, you know, deflation and, you know, price stability, 2% inflation. So we're almost, you know, like 30 years of this. And and we haven't really seen deflation in any other major economy on any sustained basis. So in that respect, um, we're not becoming Japan. But I think whenever whenever anybody says, is the US or is Europe becoming like Japan, you have to say, in what regard? If we're talking about um, interest rates getting very low. The central bank essentially running out of conventional interest rate ammunition and having to dig deep into uh, unconventional policy, particularly quantitative easing. Yes, all of that has happened. And in some sense, America, you know, and everybody with COVID now, you've even got the Reserve Bank of Australia, Bank of Canada, banks that uh, have avoided QE back in the global financial crisis, they're actually doing it this time as well. So in that regard, in the sense that everybody's macroeconomic policy uh approach has been really challenged and they've all had to sort of copy what Japan the bank of Japan in particular did yeah. I'd answer in the affirmative, but I still think there are some key differences. You mentioned the, the bank of Japan sort of being the pioneer. It's not just quantitative easing, it's forward guidance, it's credit easing, it's macro policy. The only thing that I don't think the bank of Japan can got there first, of course, was negative interest rate policy. Um, European Central Bank and some other Swiss Central Bank uh, a couple of others got there first but the Bank of Japan when it did launch negative interest rate policy which was January 2016 did it in quite an innovative way and, and and sort of put their own tweaks into the system so they are kind of the unsung heroes of monetary policy innovation in the world as we speak today. Yield curve control, of course, targeting the 10-year JGB yield at around zero is their latest uh, contribution.
0: So um, I'm not sure if you saw Martin Wolf's um, interview uh, last Sunday uh, with Larry Summers, and that's going to the other extreme. Larry Summers is now worried that inflation, we'll get more inflation than we bargained for by following the Japanese model. Um, Do you agree with that or do you worry or do we... Are we really measuring inflation
1: correctly? Mm. Uh, well, I have, I have great respect for Larry and he's kind of my like uh, my boss, if you like, in the sense he's the director of the centre in which I sit at the <laughs> Harvard Kennedy School. So I'll watch my P's and Q's. Um, but I'm, I, <laughs> He won't <you> know, mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I'm, I'm not worried about, worried, quote unquote, about uh, inflation uh, at the moment and would really, uh, you know make two points, I guess, broad brush. And, but, you know, I know where Larry's coming from and he's done the sums and said, look, this could end up this way. But I would make two points, maybe three points. One is that um, with particularly with this COVID shock, which has been, you know, as an economic shock to aggregate demand, the worst shock kind of ever that you can right. see in the data. The Great Depression may have been a bigger fall, but that took longer to play out. So this was a terrible shock to unemployment, uh, to activity that happened last year. There's been, you know, a good recovery, but by no means are we back to full employment yet. So my view would be, um, you know, if if we're sort of worrying about inflation at some point, we see inflation coming through and inflationary pressures, that won't be for some, some time. That's good news. You know, crack the, crack the champagne. I mean, talking about Japan before, they've been trying to get to 2% inflation or thereabouts for 30 years and they've been struggling. Uh, inflation for the last 10 years in the US has been below the 2% target. Right. The Fed now has adopted a, a uh, framework which, again, takes a leaf out of the Bank of Japan's book and has this sort of overshoot commitment. To, to get above two percent and for a while to sort of a kind of a makeup strategy um so you know it would actually be good news if we were sitting around and worrying about how do we control inflation um the, the second point is i just slip in there you mentioned larry is of course larry one of the things that he's done is um put the focus on this idea of secular stagnation right. since i think 2015 or so when he put that out there. Um, I don't particularly like the term secular stagnation, but basically what it means, because the stagnation part seems a little bit, doesn't really gel with the situation that we're dealing with, I don't think. But, you know, that's the term that was used in the 1930s and Larry resurrected it. Um, But basically what it means is that the natural rate of interest, this kind of unseen uh, uh, variable, which essentially is the real interest rate associated with the economy being you know in equilibrium with uh, full employment low stable inflation everything's looking good that has come down and down and down and down and the fed has recognized this this other central banks have we don't quite understand fully why this has happened but it's it's happened and what what that means is that It's very hard to tell, you know, how the economy will be acting and what will be happening to the real rate of interest and to other variables, including inflation, you know, two, three, four, five years out because the world seems to have changed in ways that we don't fully understand. So that would argue to me, Lyric, a -hmm. better approach with macroeconomic policy, fiscal and monetary, would be to kind of keep pushing, try to run the economy hot. Uh, If we get to that hot point, that's good. That will be victory. Then the third point is, well, do we have the tools to deal with inflation starting to threaten to break out on the upside? And the answer is, yes, we do. That's called rate tightening, interest <laughs> right. rates mm-hmm. and fiscal tightening, tax right. hikes, et cetera. So I would, you know, cut a long story short, say, look, we want to get back to some inflationary pressure. That would be good, particularly for the people at the bottom end of society who are really struggling, been hit with shock after shock. Um, and when we get there, you know, we can cross that bridge when we come to it. And when we do, we've got the toolkit to deploy uh, to, I think, deal with that problem of future inflation.
0: So I know it's still a, a moving target, but what do you think about the Biden stimulus plan? plan?
1: Well, um, you know, I'm, I'm in the I'm in the, the 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 broad sort of my my broad framework for thinking about these things. Really, as I just said, is to. Um, keep throwing monetary and fiscal policy at the economy until we get it get back to full employment. So, you know, I'm sure any government plan that comes out, the stimulus plan, you know, we had, you know, the Trump stimulus plans, we've got the Biden stimulus plan. Now, you can go through, you know, as a more micro, macro economist and say, hold on a minute, this kind of expenditure would be better than this or that. But I think broadly speaking, we're in a period where it's still appropriate to have very expansionary monetary and particularly fiscal policy because we've got, when we have a very low real interest rate and nominal interest rate, central banks have hit the zero bound. They're doing quantitative easing on a massive scale. This is really a world in which um, we're really being told by the data, by the economy, you really need to use fiscal policy as the proactive policy tool much more than monetary policy. The roles, mm-hmm. I think, once you hit the zero bound, which Japan hit in 1999, as I mentioned, uh, you're really in a world where fiscal policy needs to take over from monetary policy. But the frameworks that we work with are not really set up uh, to do that in a in a, in a smooth way. But um, the... So cut long story short, the more I see fiscal policy being proactive uh, in a world where we have very low interest rates, where we have still high unemployment and, you know, to use a traditional term, apparently slack in the economy, I'm mean, i in favor of that.
0: There's a lot of discussion about tax increases to eventually pay for all of this. And in particular, corporate taxes. Do you think it's too soon to be talking about that, that we haven't really reached I, I, that I, point I yet?
1: Do, I, I I do. And, you know, you mentioned the Monetary Garden of Eden idea I had. That's an idea that I sort of probably betray my my Catholic upbringing uh, (laughs) that I came to a few years ago, which is what I really learned from my sort of decades in Japan and studying the Japanese problem and the deflation and everything else was that um, in a Japan-style situation, which is sharp fall in aggregate demand, maybe deleveraging forces acting on the economy, Uh, maybe this very low natural rate of interest that we have now all over the place. When you're in that world, you need monetary and fiscal policy to be working hand in hand and close together and to be stimulatory. So you ask about tax increases. Um, Now, there are various reasons for having the tax system that you do. Most people think tax system, taxes being necessary to raise revenue. I don't I don't agree with that. Um, the government doesn't need to raise tax revenue. The federal government doesn't need to raise tax revenue to fund its expenditure It because it creates the money that it spends. What it needs taxes for, I would say, is three things. There are three things that, that, that we need taxes for. One is to correct for externalities, negative and positive externalities. You use the tax system and subsidies to, you know, to do that and, you know, Carbon taxes and things like that are an example of where you'd want to use uh, taxes. So taxes have a key role to play in terms of of trying to get a more efficient economy. The second one is obviously to redistribute income, to redistribute purchasing power uh, from people who have a lot of it to people that need more of it. And the third one is to modulate aggregate demand. That is, if you don't have enough aggregate demand, you have expansionary fiscal policy. But sometimes you need to rein in government spending, you need to rein in the over, overheating in the economy. That's when you need to raise taxes. So you raise taxes to sort of rein in the economy and rein in aggregate demand. As we were just discussing, we're not there yet, anywhere mm-hmm. near that point. Let's save the, the tax uh, levers for that, uh, for that time. But if the discussion is about, well, we need to change the tax system for those other two purposes, then um, obviously that's a, a legitimate discussion to have. But it's not a discussion really so much about macroeconomic policy and aggregate demand management. I see. Because we I'm sure
0: we both remember when Japan, just as things were starting to go well, raised the consumption tax. Yeah, which and, was a disaster. And, which you know, was a total disaster.
1: I, right. I again, I mean, I'm a simple man. I argued <laughs> before that was done that that was a, a very bad thing to do. Um, and Japan's been doing this for a long time. Um, they seem to have backed away a little bit now, which is to put the foot on the monetary accelerator and put the foot on the fiscal brake from time to time. And if you step back and look at Abenomics, the you know eight years or so of of Prime Minister Abe, on the monetary side, it's very difficult to find fault. Bank of Mm -hmm. Japan pulled out all the stops and, you know, done everything, more or less everything it could, done too much according to many people. But on the fiscal side, during those several years of Abenomics, the consumption tax rate was doubled from 5% to 10%. So that was a serious draining of consumer purchasing power at a time in which... They were trying ostensibly to end deflation. I'm sorry, fiscal tightening what a mess as, mm-hmm. a, as a policy to end deflation makes no sense. But what was the thinking behind that lyric? The thinking was, well, we have to raise taxes in order to pay for an aging society. That is fallacious thinking. You don't pay for future <laughs> prosperity by uh, pushing the economy today into a bigger ditch. You do it. By having policies that are aimed at ensuring that you have a prosperous society in the future, which means physical capital stock, technological capital stock, human capital stock, social capital stock. Those are the things that will determine a country's prosperity in the future, not pieces of paper called treasuries or JGBs or bullets that have numbers written on them.
0: Well, I want to also ask you, of course, about what your prescriptions are in terms of a more unconventional uh, fiscal monetary coordination. Um, But I also wanted to take advantage of your experience at S&P and ask you about rating agencies. And do you think um, one thing that's a huge topic of discussion now is ESG and investing and um, potentially having social credit uh some kind of social credit system rankings for corporations um do you think that uh rating agencies will get into that game as companies too corporations are becoming more than what they used to be and are taking political stances and broadening their stakeholder
1: base, uh, base? Uh, yes, so well, I think they're already doing that. Um mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't want to speak too much for S&P because I, I don't work with S&P anymore, but um you know, even when I was there up until a couple of years ago, um, that was there was a big interest in in ESG indices in mm-hmm. various um, sort of ratings in various analytical frameworks. Um so it was uh, data, ESG data and standardization etc. So um you know, how that how that would find its way into the credit rating is is a more mm-hmm. tricky kind of point. But um, rating agencies, you know, they're credit rating agencies first and foremost, but these days, of course, you know, if other things need to be rated, they've got the, uh, you know, the technology, if you like, the core competence to branch into those areas. So I don't know about all of the rating agencies, but certainly um, S&P have been very active in this field. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I think investors look to the rating agencies for some guidance as well in terms of how to think about these things, how to measure them, and how to rank them. Mm. Thank you for that.
0: I am um, um, also then want to go to your prescriptions for the future, mm. as I mentioned. Um, we're uh, both members of the Bretton Woods Committee, and they've recently come out uh, uh, with a report on sovereign debt. And um, you have a very interesting explanation of why sovereign debt really can't or shouldn't be uh, canceled. Um, And why is that? How does that work, Paul? How do you see that framework?
1: Right. Uh, Thanks, Lirik. So, again, sort of harking back to sort of Japan days, there's been this idea that's been rattling around for a long time. It comes up every now and again, and investors ask these questions and whatnot, of saying, well, okay, what's happened in the world in the last, since the financial crisis, even earlier for Japan, is we've had uh, huge budget deficits, a huge buildup of government debt. But then we've had these central banks that have been uh, doing all this QE and buying all these bonds. So when you think about it, you say, hold on a minute, the the government's got, uh, issued this debt on the liability side of its balance sheet. The central bank is part of the government consolidated government, although it's sort of an independent entity um, in terms of its its monetary policy decision making. And they hold all these debts, all these JGBs or treasuries or whatever they are, on the asset side of their balance sheet, which is the asset side of the consolidated government balance sheet. So lo and behold, these bonds are sitting on both sides of the balance sheet. And the numbers can be huge. In Bank of Japan's case, they now own uh, something like you know, north of 500 and, well, in terms percentage terms, 55% of all the JGBs issued is owned by the Bank of Japan. So a lot of people say, or some people say, well, hold on, could we kill two birds with one stone here? If we cancel those government debt securities out because they're held, they're held internally within the government's balance sheet, that will sort of unwind the, the QE and it will also take this debt overhang off the market. Um, so it sounds like a, a free lunch. Now, of course, Milton Friedman <laughs> warned us about free lunches. Um, the, the the problem with that argument, there's a, there's a few problems, but the biggest one is I think that most people who make that argument overlook the fact that How did this QE happen together to to begin with? Well, quantitative easing is essentially a a situation where I call it plain vanilla QE, where the central bank buys its, its own government's debt securities, is essentially a debt refinancing operation of the consolidated government, where the consolidated government retires certain debt, let's call them treasuries in the US, and refinances them into central bank reserves so i mentioned the huge stack of jgbs that the bank of japan has but of course they also have almost an equivalent amount of central bank reserves or base money that mm-hmm. they've created so qe is just a sort of a dollar for dollar euro for euro or yen for yen swap engineered by the central bank of one form of government liability, money, for another. Taking bonds out of circulation and putting base money in return. Um, What that means is from the private sector's point of view, the sort of net position of the government vis-a-vis the private sector hasn't changed at all. What's changed is the composition. So now the private sector ends up owning depending on where you're in the chain of the financial ecosystem, bank deposits or the banks themselves hold these huge amounts of reserves, which now, well, not quite now, but in principle now, um, central banks are able to charge interest on those reserves. So the point about this, this debts cancellation within between the central bank and the treasury, you could do it, it will raise all kinds of kind of logistical issues. Um, but one of them is, well, what's the balancing, you know, balancing item on the central bank's balance sheet when it writes off all these government debt securities? Something on the the right-hand side of their balance sheet has to balance. Well, they're certainly not going to destroy all of those reserves, presumably. No one's ever suggested that because they're assets held by the private sector. So in other, And if they did that lyric, effectively mm. that would be like a giant default Vis-a-vis the private sector.
0: Exactly.
1: And you'd be blowing holes in financial financial institutions' balance sheets. You may trigger a financial crisis. So that would hardly be, you know, the, the intent of the exercise. You know, the equity account of the central bank could go into, you know, trillions of dollars' negative net worth, um, but, you know, perhaps... Well, Congress and the the, the Fed and the Treasury would not be too keen about that. Um, But in any case, the consolidated government, when the economy does recover and you need to raise interest rates to rein in demand, that the traditional old thing that central banks do, call it the Fed now, the Fed will be the one with all the liabilities issued to the private sector and the Fed will be the one paying the higher interest on reserves, it will just have turned itself into the Treasury Department. (laughs) So that's the the wrong way to do it. When you think through the whole thing, it it just, you know, it's complicated but it doesn't make a lot of sense. But I think one thing that it does underscore, first of all, it underscores two things. The fact that QE we should really think of as this debt refinancing operation of the consolidated government, just changing the debt profile When you think of it that way, it's much less scary but also much less likely to be stimulatory than those charts that you see with, you know, central bank balance sheets going through the roof and all this business about printing money. What those charts don't show is that as central bank's balance sheets are going up, treasuries or JGBs are also being sucked out of the system. It's a one-for-one transfer. But it also underscores that really, when we're in the world that we're in now, monetary and fiscal policy, kind of the, the distinction between them and the respective uh, demarcation and division of labor between what we call monetary and fiscal policy really starts to break down. And maybe we should start to think about not canceling debt, but thinking about that relationship between monetary and fiscal policy in slightly new way and, and maybe an innovative way.
0: That's, and that's uh, the paper that you wrote, I think, too, for Bretton Woods. Um, as well, and I think um, that's really fascinating. So, obviously, you've been describing the wrong way to do something like that—to erase the boundaries. But what is the right way to restructure the conventional mm. fiscal monetary policy right. Right. Uh, so infrastructure?
1: What, yeah. So, what I've been arguing for again, this all comes out of my Japan experience and, and having to grapple with these ideas in Japan. Um, and and I'm you know I'm. I look at these things sort of cross nationally, so I'm not just talking about the U.S. I'm talk, you know I'm thinking about it, Japan, I'm thinking about Australia, I'm thinking about Europe, and you know the EU has, and the Euro area in particular mm-hmm. has, particular it's sui generis. It has these you know it's a fiscal it's not a fiscal union, it's a monetary union, so it has particular pe- peculiarities. And of course, in the U.S., we have this complicated separation of powers between. And, you know the administrative Congress stuff, yeah. so there's, it's it's a little bit trickier in the US as well but um, my thesis um, just stepping back for a moment um, lyric is that the the framework that we're all all economists you know, card-carrying Bretton Woods committee members, you know, people who go to the IIF, IMF meetings and, you know, central bank watches, et cetera. You know, we all worship at the altar of the central bank independence. And, you know, central banks being given the job of managing the macro economy. maybe fiscal policy helps from time to time, but they're given the job, independent technocrats who manage this process. And my thesis is that that's just one particular institutional configuration which evolved in the second half of the 20th century, an early part of this century, to solve a particular problem, which is that governments can create money. And if you don't have some shackles in place, some institutional framework in place to curb the tendency and the ability of governments to print too much money, which chases too few goods, and we get runaway inflation, um, you'll be in trouble. So that's a a great solution to that problem. But starting with Japan in the 1990s and then with the global financial crisis and now with COVID and with secular stagnation or that declining low R star, Mm -hmm. which seems to be driven, in my view, much more by technological forces, not the normal sort of macroeconomic ones like insufficient aggregate demand. Uh, So that's probably not going away. We're we're in a world where the proximate Challenge for macroeconomic policy is keeping the economy at full employment, making sure that everybody has access to purchasing power that they can consume the output of increasingly affluent societies, which we are. Um, And so the problem is not we have to rig things up so that the central bank is independent of the fiscal authorities, never the twain shall meet, but rather we have to think about well, if the problem is maybe deflation or disinflation or insufficient aggregate demand or central banks being stuck at the zero bound with not very powerful tools anymore. Um, How does fiscal and monetary cooperate together? Um, First of all, I think we have to get over our kind of hang-up because the moment that I start talking like this, you're
0: a heretic, Paul. <laughs> like <laughs> you're, you're a total heretic. heretic. <laughs> Did,
1: don't you? Didn't you see what happened in the the twentieth century, etc.? No, no, we know that. So I've, I had, I've developed three ideas, and you know, don't have a monopoly on this. I'm sure there's lots of good ideas, but. The first one um, would – and this sort of increasing levels of sort of uh, kind of aggressiveness, if you like, or radicalness. The first one would just be um, to make that mental shift that I just mentioned and say, look, we should recognise that there are many circumstances in which we do want monetary and fiscal policy to be working together, cooperating, communicating, maybe engaging in joint action. Maybe something like helicopter money, for Mm -hmm. example. Um, And it's interesting when you look around the world. Now, we started with Japan. When I look at the Japanese macroeconomic policy framework, it's actually set up in a way, in exactly that way, um, that there is a very good framework for the Bank of Japan to work with the fiscal authorities and the government in pursuit of common goals of good macroeconomic performance, et cetera, et cetera. I'm talking, I don't know if you want to go into detail, but if you look at the Bank of Japan Act, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, the Bank of Japan is having its independence transgressed on. Well, Article 4 of the Bank of Japan Act says that the Bank of Japan must communicate closely with the government with a view to making sure that its monetary policy is consistent with the basic economic policy stance of the government. And that basic policy stance, which might be something as simple as saying, we have to overcome deflation, is set in another forum at which the Bank of Japan governor has a seat. And there's another coordinating body, which you're familiar with, and many listeners would be the Council on Economic and Fiscal Policy. Again, uh, a, a, a forum which is notionally headed by the Prime Minister, the Minister of Finance is there, Minister of Economic and Fiscal Policy, but also the Bank of Japan governor. So there are lots of mechanisms for the fiscal and monetary to talk to one another and kind of, kind of coordinate about what they're going to do, which I think if you're in deflation or you're in these other situations can be very powerful. Another example is Australia, where the head of the Treasury, who is uh, not a political appointee it's a, the most senior official or bureaucrat ex officio sits on the Reserve Bank uh, governing body as a voting member. And again, there are articles in the Reserve Bank of Australia Act which require the Reserve Bank to communicate closely and align itself with the government. Um, so, what what could you do, for example, in 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 uh, the U.S.? Um, you know, I've been a little bit bold and suggested well. Uh, To get better coordination, why not think about, for example, we have a thing called the National Economic Council, headed up by the Director of National Economic Council. Uh, The Fed Chair could sit on that uh, committee, uh, have a seat at that table. Uh, It could go the other way as well. What about the Chairman of the Council of Economic Advisers or the Director of the NEC or maybe the Secretary of the Treasury, whoever, you know, you could argue about this, being a member of the FOMC. Now, people will say, hold on a minute, go back to 1935 when the FOMC was set up. They had to kick the Secretary of the Treasury off that board for the Fed to get its independence. But just because that
0: was then it doesn't mean it's right always. Maybe that was an important part Mm -hmm. of the
1: whole institutional social learning process, but we're almost a century on. We can think about this in different ways now. So that's the first one. The second one is... Um, what I call a switching regime of saying, you know, when the threat to macro policy stability is high inflation, the, the very reason that we, mm-hmm. we had this independent technocratic central bank, then you have the current framework of a good deal of separation. But when it has sort of becomes obvious through various metrics that um, we're in a deflationary or a very recessionary uh, uh, point, uh, period, that's when you switch to a, uh, a regime of much closer coordination. So, I you see. know, you make it state contingent.
0: Isn't that um, what happened during the great financial crisis, actually? In a sense.
1: And when I've had, mm-hmm. you know, some very economists that I, I respect very well, um, you know, said to me, well, Paul, this happens anyway. So, you know, why do we need to change things? But I would posit that, uh, you know, if it happens anyway because it should happen, then it would be a good idea to sort institutionalize of it. institutionalise mm-hmm. that. People say, oh, right, well, right. the Secretary of the Treasury meets the Governor, or the, the Chair of the Fed every week for breakfast or something. Well, you know, let's not be embarrassed about it. Let's institutionalise that. And the third one, which is a bit more radical, but I think is actually gets to the analytical issues better, um, is I've suggested a few years back... Um, What about setting up an agency of aggregate demand management where we combine monetary and fiscal policy? Now, let me just stop and flesh that out a little bit, if I may, Lyric. Sure. It it strikes me that it's a little bit strange, the current framework that we have, where we give one part of aggregate demand management to this independent technocratic central bank but we give another part, we leave it with the polit- the politicians, the Congress, the parliaments, et cetera, because fiscal policy has a pure aggregate demand management component. Mm-hmm. We've seen that in this period where a you know, massive amount of purchasing power has been injected into the, into the economy. So in terms of the pure aggregate demand management aspect of fiscal policy, why is it that we give one part to independent technocrats and we leave another part, which kind of, you know, overlaps, we don't know where the line is, to the, pol- the politicians. That doesn't seem very logical. So why not think about um, some kind of mechanism, an like agency, that would have some responsibility for both? Now, one of the arguments against that is to say, well, fiscal policy is inherently, re- you know, it involves inherently politics, inherently redistribution. Inherently, it has different sectoral impacts. Well, I think one of the things that we've learned with this more than decade now of quantitative easing is that fiscal policy, sorry, monetary policy also has sectoral implications and has perhaps very dramatic uh, (laughs) impacts on Mm -hmm. the distribution of income. Exactly. Um, And, you know, it's always been the case that monetary policy tended to work through interest rate-sensitive sectors, housing, consumer durables, autos, et cetera. Already there was a sectoral impact. People forget, Lyric, that one of the main sectors that, is, that sort of benefits from or whose activity is distorted by monetary policy is the financial sector.
0: I was going to and just say banks. People
1: are starting to worry yeah. about over financialization I think Mark Carney's most recent book, I haven't read it yet, but it's probably moving into that territory as well. So, yeah, Karen, of Karen we Petru's
0: have, book um, on uh, Fed, the Fed and inequality squarely lays the blame right. for inequality on monetary policy, not mm. fiscal policy. So I'd highly right. recommend it to you, yeah. Right. I think so I'm you'd just really enjoy
1: it. I'm following in Karen's footsteps here. You've planned this <laughs> yes, you out are. well. <laughs> um, but so yes, so on QE, I mean, it's very clear that, and and, you know, I'm speaking, Lyric, as you know, as somebody who literally has defended and promoted QE for a couple of decades, um, going right back, you know, when I've always said, look, if if under this framework central banks are given the job of managing, you know, the inflation and full employment, you can't blame them for doing whatever they can do to try to achieve that goal. That doesn't mean the framework in which they are doing that is the best framework. I I wonder if they wouldn't
0: agree with you. I think some behind closed doors probably would. But
1: But I do Hmm. think we've got this situation where the more QE you do, um, obviously that works through financial conditions, through asset prices, equity prices go up. That's not a bad thing as long as it's not an outright bubble. But the people who benefit most from that, of course, are already extremely wealthy people. Essentially, with a marginal propensity to consume of zero, exactly. and the people who are, you know, unemployment in this last recession in the U.S. went from three point five percent in February of last year to fourteen point eight percent two months later, and the BLS estimated that there was still another five percentage points that were not accounted for because of measurement error with PP, you know, the Paycheck and Protection Program, and stuff like that, and also I mean, just people seen who dropped like out. This before. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, so I think like I mean I don't I don't have the 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 they're all specced out how you would actually do this but I think analytically we can see that there's I think a, a case to be made for having a rethink of the whole macroeconomic policy framework and saying where are the bits that we want to take out and give to the technocrats maybe independent boards etc and what are the ones we want to leave in the hands of the politicians and make that line a little bit more brighter and not be afraid to have the conversation. Okay, wonderful. So we've been talking about
0: centralized finance here, basically, um, centralized systems. But it seems to me that a lot of the innovation in finance is coming from decentralized solutions and fintech and so forth, and that Silicon Valley might be a more important place to look. For financial innovation than New York or Washington. Um, Coinbase's revenues are greater than all of the combined exchanges. They just went public yesterday. Um, How do you see decentralized finance fitting into the picture of this new um, uh, infrastructure that you're Mm. describing? Where do you think it will take us, all of these new innovations, five years from now, 10 years from now, how, will right. banks be disintermediated? What's your bigger vision for the future, Paul? That's what I'm. Yeah, I want to pick um, your brain on that.
1: Yeah, well, I, I wish I wish I knew. I mean, the, the crystal ball is a little bit cloudy, but um, I, I think big picture, what we're what we're seeing is, as you said, tremendous innovation. Uh, call it Silicon Valley, cryptocurrencies you know, mm-hmm. Bitcoin, blockchain, tokens, you know, ICOs, you know, you name it. Um, it's really head spinning to, ke- to keep up with all that stuff. And, and that's, all, that's all kind of money. And that's what isn't, I mean, when you pare down fiscal policy and monetary policy, they all come back to money. Um, so if you, if you look, you know, the discussion we just had, if you think about how does money come into the economy, I've been pointing out that it, it comes in three ways. Um, one is through bank lending. That's really the main way in which money gets into the system. Every time a bank lends, it creates a bank deposit. That's part of money supply. Um, and that's very much rooted in the private sector. But, but of course, it's, it's, it's also connected through regulation and also through the operation of the monetary system to the central banks. That's what QE is the reason we have all these reserves in the banking, they're they're accounts, that's money that that banks have with the central bank. So the the private and monetary monetary policy works through bank lending channels and financial conditions. So so one way that money comes into existence is through that credit creation of banks, but it's very much linked into the, 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 the official sector, if you like. The second way is by governments running budget deficits. That essentially creates money. We don't usually look at it that way because that money is quickly turned into bonds and for some reason I don't fully understand, bonds are not counted as part of the money supply. But the moment you do QE and you reverse it, lo and behold, it's base money now or it's M2 or M1 if it's in in bank deposits. So everything we talked about before – budget deficits, fiscal policy, that also creates money. It's a second way. And the third way is through central banks buying assets. But that's in some ways the least important way that money gets into the system because I would argue it really just basically changes the form of the money. But I think, (laughs) to get to your question, all this what you call decentralized finance or cryptocurrencies are a kind of fourth uh, stu- uh, leg to the stool, which is, you know, ostensibly... Now it's happening- a table. <laughs> the table, okay. Now it's a full <laughs> ostensibly, table. Ostensibly <laughs> um, happening outside this traditional monetary fiscal system. Um, now, that in and of itself suggests, hold on a minute, I mean, is this really going to be a a challenge in the sense of overturning the sort of, call it the eff- the conventional official system? I don't think so because you go back to, you know, the basic definition of money, what makes for good money, we, you know, unit of mm-hmm. account, medium of exchange, store of value. And at the moment at least when you look at these cryptocurrencies, um, you know, they're not really rivaling the dollar or the euro or the yen on any of those metrics Affecting do, gold more, I think. But they do seem to be mm-hmm. becoming more and more increasingly part of the financial ecosystem, That's and right. part of the mechanism by which people transfer purchasing power and wealth into the future, which is what government debt does as well. It's a little bit like um, you know artwork or you know antiques and things, which maybe in if you you know, disentangle them that the ingredients are not worth anything, but scarcity value and also the coordination of everybody on those assets gives them value. Cryptocurrencies are becoming like that. But it's going beyond that, because of course, they are part of the payment system as well. And as you know, Lyric lasts probably five to 10 years now. Bitcoin was a wake up to the central banks. And right. all the talk now is about well, central bank digital currencies. Right. So I think central banks are now um, really looking at these cryptocurrency, crypto asset developments, realizing that they're going to probably be part of the financial ecosystem and that's a good thing because you know innovation is good, but by the same token, They want to keep them on certain guardrails. But I think this Silicon Valley is a disruptor. And one of the things it's disrupting is the traditional monetary financial Mm -hmm. system. So to the bottom line, and you want me like, okay, try to move the clouds away from the crystal ball. Mm -hmm. I kind of think that the more that you go down this central bank digital currency route, um, the more I think you start to see a, a different way of the, of the treasuries of governments and the central banks of governments working together. Uh, in other words, you know, think about why couldn't you? We all have a social security number. Why couldn't we all have an account with the Fed? Or why couldn't we all have an account with the Treasury? Maybe That's what the they're IRS. doing in
0: China now. That's essentially what China's trying to accomplish. Yeah.
1: And, and and why can't we just, um, you know, essentially all this money that's going out into, you know, people's QE, I think Jeremy Corbyn called it a few years back. It's not exactly the concept I would have. But I think we have to, as all of this Silicon Valley disruption works its way through the system, maybe step back and say, can we reorganise the plumbing here of the way in which central banks and fiscal authorities operate in a way that says, we want to now start thinking about monetary what we call monetary and fiscal policy in a very different way and see if we can replumb the system in a way that maybe um brings into this whole system all that disruptive innovative energy of silicon valley because if central banks and fiscal authorities and governments don't do that then they I think, stand to be somewhat disintermediated at some point. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think it's it's going to be some kind of balancing act. Um, but it really, really kind of fascinating times that we're living in.
0: It is fascinating. I always thought what uh, central banks should do is rather than gold, also accumulate Bitcoin because there's a limited supply of it. Maybe rather than creating their own central bank digital currency might mm. be a better way... To grab hold of what's going on, but yeah, I don't yeah. think they're going to. Well, po- possibly I would say the first, the first place to do that might be the Bank of Japan. Yeah, so yeah. to go taking and their just, pioneering role.
1: Un- underscore one more point just on the sort of the analytics of this is that be- because we economists sort of fell in love so much with you know inflation targeting and independent central banks, etc., um, we kind of forgot about the fact that the central bank is actually the banker to the government. It's not just the, the supplier of currency. It's not just the banker to the banking system. It's also the banker to the government. That's in mm-hmm. the Federal Reserve Act. It's in most of these legislations. And, again, that's just a, a way in which this. if you look at the central bank's balance sheets, you actually see one of the most important components on the liability side of a central bank's balance sheet is government deposits, the deposits of the fiscal authority at the central bank. Um, and... You know, QE and, and 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 fiscal policy is constantly, and bond issuance is always working its way through those accounts. So again, you know, this these central bank digital—it's sort of it's sort of strange that we're talking about central bank digital currencies. We're not talking about government digital currencies. So maybe the way to frame this conversation is more from. That perspective, and not just keeping it narrowly focused on the central banks, it's it's been interesting to me that,
0: and again, I think partly
1: partly a a factor, a a, a product of the fact that so so many, every central bank has a huge research department. How many treasuries and how many governments have equivalent sort of fiscal research entities with hundreds of PhDs in in economics? So central banks have cornered the intellectual capital Mm -hmm. on the whole Mm -hmm. thinking about mm-hmm. this issue. And I do think that fiscal authorities need to assert themselves more into the conversation, not just as regulators of big tech, but as what does this mean for macroeconomic policy and that framework?
0: Well, th- thank you, Paul. I hope that uh, – you are you thinking of writing a book and putting all this together as well as all of your experiences? I Yes.
1: Work in progress. Thanks Work in progress.
0: Okay, we'll be, and then you'll have to come back so that I can talk to you about the book. But this has been fantastic. By the way, can you catch us up on what's going on in Australia? Um, a lot of people don't hear as much, right. of and with the pandemic and mm. the economy, I'm quite curious what's going on there.
1: Right. Sh- sh- um, shall I speak to COVID more than I mentioned? Whatever you would like. Before, but well, yeah. well, well. Then, well the, I guess it all maybe. inter it all interconnects now, doesn't right. it? Right, it does. Well, a couple of points, um, lyric. One is, of course, that um, Australia had this wonderful record right through the global financial crisis and the Great Recession of having this uninterrupted twenty five years and counting zero of yeah
0: quarter no recession. Mm-hmm. And of
1: course, COVID put an end to that. So you know, the first point to make is Australia has joined the club. Australia now yeah, has has recessions again. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think, I mentioned the framework before, the monetary and fiscal um, sort of coordination, joint action does work quite well in Australia. I and, see. you know, I have tremendous respect for Phil Lowe, the RBA governor. I think he's one of the most sensible kind of, you know, down-to-earth mm. central bank governors. But, you know, he, he makes the point when, when he talks of, of saying that, you know, the, the, the RBA takes a more pragmatic kind of approach to monetary policy. They don't get you know, they don't get sort of hijacked by decimal points on inflation rates and targets and things. They do see their role as, you know, being the monetary part of the government that cooperates with the rest of the government to ensure full employment, price stability and, you know, economic prosperity. So they've launched um, quantitative easing and various other programs, funding schemes, etc. But on the COVID side, it's perhaps even a more remarkable story, which is... Um, uh, you know, the lockdowns in Australia have been dramatic. Severe, and, yeah, um, compared
0: to here. Mm-hmm.
1: The, the 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 death toll from COVID has been very, very low, but as Australia would say, well, that's because we took the right measures. But they've basically cut themselves off from the rest of the world. So some extraordinary things have happened. State borders, there are six states in Australia. State borders have come back into existence. And it's almost like, you know, well, in certain occasions, certain periods, you haven't been able to, get out of a state or get into another state. The whole country is locked down. There are many Australians stranded overseas because they cannot get back into Australia. Mm. Um, they're very limited flights and almost a quota on the number of people that can come in. There's a compulsory two-week quarantine where you're hauled off to a, by the government to a hotel. So it's pretty draconian. Um, and uh, they're really sort of I think, almost have a COVID eradication strategy and banking on, you know, eventually being able to uh, piggyback on the vaccines and and get herd immunity that way. But I'm a little bit worried, I have to say, as an Australian-American who, you know, originally came from Australia, um, that, you know, Australia really opened up to the world. It became globalised. It became at the forefront of... Uh, australians being all over the world pop up all over the place um and being a very internationalized place it's really gone back now at least temporarily but it's already more than a year to a much more kind of quarantine mentality and australia mm-hmm. as an isolated continent you know already <laughs> always had this mm-hmm. sensitivity to quarantine issues you know mm-hmm. seeds and insects and pests, et cetera, and was very strict. Now that's extended to humans as well with COVID. And I just worry a little bit about the longer-term consequences for the country in terms of, you know, its place in the world and, you know, potentially becoming cut off and perhaps, you know, in many ways kind of isolated, mm-hmm. and sort of you know, sliding sliding back. But, um, you know, definitely uh, an important economy and nation to keep a, a close eye on.
0: Well, I have. Uh, I think once all of this is over, I imagine I'll see Aussies everywhere, all over the world, all of a, a sudden. Of, a lot of pent up <laughs> pent demand, up demand. That's for sure. exactly, exactly. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been an incredible discussion, very thought provoking, um, and I hope you'll come back once your work in progress is is completed. Um, and uh, thank you to also our team here. Uh, behind the scenes that make all of this work, our managing editor, Ying Zan, and our sound engineer, our producer, really, Sam Fu. Thank you so much. And please visit our website to sign up for alerts for our next podcast, EconVue, EconVue.com. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Lyric. Thanks for having me.
0: See you again soon, I hope, Paul.
1: Hope so.